while he's getting the rest of them, Justin, let me go ahead with one. Okay. How would you counsel a young man considering going into ministry? Great question. Um, I'm not real big on, you know, this whole idea of I felt the call because that kind of goes into what we've been talking about tonight. You know, that's a terminology that we've kind of used in our evangelical lingo or vernacular. Um, I would say this, if you're, if you're considering going into ministry, examine yourself, ask yourself, do I meet the biblical qualifications to be in ministry? Am I the husband of one wife? Uh, do I, am I above reproach? I have a good reputation with those outside the church. Am I temperate? Am I free of the love of money? Uh, am I not addicted to much wine? Those kinds of qualifications. And, and if you meet those qualifications and you have a desire to go into ministry, then do it. If that's what you want to do, do it. Um, now, if you don't meet the qualifications, you know, for example, if, if, you, if you're a closet alcoholic or you're being unfaithful to your wife, or if you're looking at stuff on the computer, don't even think about going into ministry. Because you've got bigger problems than whether or not you ought to be in ministry. Um, but if you meet the biblical qualifications and you desire to do that, then do it. Then do it. And I would say this, too. If you can, if you can see yourself doing something else and being happy and satisfied in doing something else, a different profession, don't go into ministry. That would be my counsel. Don't go into ministry. But if you meet the biblical qualifications, you have the desire to do it, and you honestly just cannot imagine yourself being satisfied at doing anything else, prepare for the ministry. Okay. Excellent. All right, here's one that goes along with the visions and dreams and prophecy. What would you say about Peter's sermon in Acts 2 where he says, In the last days your sons, will do your sons and daughters shall prophesy and your young men will see visions and your old men will dream dreams. Should we expect to see this in the future? Uh, well, should we expect to see it in the future? Yes, we should expect to see it in the future, but not right now. Because uh, Peter's sermon, Peter was quoting Joel chapter, chapter 2 in his sermon in Acts chapter 2. And a lot of charismatics use... Peter's citation of Joel 2 as proof that, hey, we should be having dreams and visions and all that kind of stuff. But when you read Joel's sermon, Peter's quotation of it, uh, it speaks of some other things, too, that have clearly not happened. Signs in the heavens. The sun will be darkened, moon turned to blood, those kind of things. We hadn't seen that. So some of those of some of what Joel prophesied are is not going to be realized until the eschatological events, and so um, we're not to be experiencing them here and now. So, so you can't take Peter's sermon, his quotation of Joel too, as proof for the charismatic position with dreams and visions. All right. Another one is where can we see scriptural proof? 
that a saved person can indeed doubt or lack assurance that he is indeed a saved child of God? Does the Bible support a Christian, uh, support that a Christian can indeed doubt his own salvation? Well, one of the things that sets the Bible apart from every other work of ancient literature is the Bible never hesitates to record the failings of its own characters. It never hesitates to do that. Um, as far as is there biblical support for doubting your salvation, well, the whole book of 1 John is written so that we may know that we have eternal life. And so spend some time in 1 John. Is it possible for a Christian, a genuine, regenerate Christian, to doubt his salvation? Yeah. Yeah, that's possible. I mean, remember, if you were here Sunday morning when I preached on the truth about trials out of James chapter 1, 2 through 4, uh, we saw some examples in Scripture of some very faithful men who wavered because of various reasons, primarily the trials of life, Asaph in Psalm chapter 73, John the Baptist, you know, are you the Messiah or should we be looking for someone else? I'd say that's a pretty good indication that John had some doubts, didn't he? Temporarily, but he did. And, and the Apostle Paul himself, uh, read uh, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, talks about he, you know, he got to the, to the brink of, the trials were so severe, he got to the brink of you know, wavering, and he did waver. Um, so, yes, I would say yes, it is absolutely possible. Please don't think that if you have ever had a moment of doubt about your salvation, then that means you're not saved. That's just not true because, you know what, we're not always on the mountaintop. We go through valleys. We go through trials. We go through hard times, and, yes, those hard times at times, can be so severe they make us doubt. But always go back to the Word of God. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5, examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. And just do that. If you go through an extended period of time of doubting your salvation, there may be good reason for that. I mean, if you're living a life of habitual, unrepentant sin, yeah, then you probably have good reason to doubt or at least to examine yourself. But look at your life. Has there been a change in my life? Do I have a love for Christ? Do I have a love for his word? Do I have a love for the brethren? Do I have a godly sorrow over sin? Am I trusting in Christ and Christ alone for my salvation? And if the answer to those questions is yes, then, then you have assurance that you're, you're one of his children. So... Yes, we're supposed to examine ourselves, but we're not supposed to live in perpetual doubt of where we are in our relationship with Christ either. Okay? Another one is, how do we reconcile the teaching we've heard tonight with illumination of the Holy Spirit or the inner witness of the Holy Spirit bearing witness with our spirit that we're the children of God? Well, um, the illumination of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit helps us as believers to understand God's Word, and He does certainly. I think one of the misunderstandings of what I've taught tonight is that I'm advocating for this cold, hard, rigid, intellectual kind of orthodoxy, you know, in which your emotions are never engaged. I don't advocate that at all. I'm not against emotions. I'm not against 
feelings. I'm just saying don't base your theology off of emotions and feelings. Uh, but I, I tell you, I would be afraid of the person who claims to be a Christian and has never had just from the pr- sheer profundity of the gospel and the profundity and the majesty of who Christ is, if your emotions have never been touched by that, then I'd be afraid of you. Um, so I'm not advocating for this kind of rigid orthodoxy, you know, that's devoid of emotion at all. I'm just saying don't interpret Scripture by what you experience. Interpret what you experience by the Scriptures. Uh, so, yes, the Holy Spirit does bear witness that we belong to him when we have all the fruits of salvation that we talked about last night. A change in our life, a love for God, love for Christ, love for his word, love for the brethren, new desires, new affections, godly sorrow over sin. That's, that's part of the Holy Spirit bearing witness that we belong to him. And another one, what do you think about some of the testimonies of some Muslims who have claimed to have come to Christ through dreams? That's a great question. And, um, and I would invite you to open with me to Romans chapter 10. It's actually something I meant to address tonight. Romans 10, 14 and 15. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? How will they hear without a preacher? Not without a dream, not without a vision. How will they hear without a preacher? Romans chapter 10, 14 and 15, and Hebrews 1, 1 and 2 that we just looked at, God long ago spoke to the fathers in many proportions in many different ways. In these last days, has spoken to us in his son. Those two passages are insurmountable headwinds to this notion of Muslims getting saved through dreams and visions. Are Muslims having dreams about Jesus? I'm sure they are. Because Jesus is part of their religious fabric. You understand that it's not that Muslims don't believe in Jesus, right? They do believe in Jesus. They just don't believe in the right Jesus. They believe that Jesus was a prophet, a great prophet, but not the Son of God. But he is a part of their religious fabric. So I would fully expect that Muslims are having, can have a dream about Jesus. I've had a dream about Muhammad before. But I don't think Muhammad was trying to (laughs) phone home, you know, and try to get in touch with me. It's, It's just a dream. So, of course, Muslims are having dreams about Jesus. I'm sure they have dreams about fried chicken and falafel and whatever, you know. Too. So, I mean, it, it, but it's, that's all it is. It's, it's dreams. It's, it's not Jesus trying to, you know, get in touch with them. Uh, a lot of these accounts, when you, when you read them, this Jesus that is appearing to these Muslims, he's sending them to bad churches, like a Roman Catholic church or a Word of Faith church. And let me tell you something that ain't the real Jesus. 
that's sending them to bad churches. Now, that might be someone else. That might be Satan who disguises himself as how? An angel of light. That's possible. But it's not possible that Jesus is doing that, the real Jesus. And let me say this too. If I were Satan and I wanted to come up with a plan and scheme to throw cold water on the evangelization of Muslims, I could think of no better tactic than to get it in the minds of evangelicals that Jesus is showing up to Muslims in dreams and visions and they're getting saved. You talk about throwing cold water on evangelizing Muslims. Oh, I don't need to I don't need to evangelize my that Muslim down there. I don't need to I don't need to share the gospel with him. Jesus is showing up in dreams and visions. I sure don't need to travel to Iran or Syria. I don't need to risk my life to share the gospel with Muslims because hey Jesus has got it covered. He's showing up in dreams and visions. There are no exception clauses in the Great Commission, dear ones. And if I were Satan, if I wanted to throw cold water on evangelizing Muslims, I could honestly think of nothing better than to get evangelicals, professing Christians, to start believing this nonsense. That is a, it's a very, very dangerous thing. It's a very dangerous thing. I've... I've not been to Iran or Syria, one of those countries yet, but I've been in, in countries that have heavy Muslim populations. I've been in communities and towns and villages where it's almost all Muslim. And I've passed out gospel tracts and I've shared the gospel with I don't know how many Muslims. And I'm, I'm not trying to pat, my, pat myself on the back here at all. But I do that because I have a great commission that tells me to do it. I'm, I'm not hoping that Jesus is going to show up in dreams and visions. It's a very, very dangerous thing. So share the gospel with Muslims. Evangelize them. Jesus isn't. Romans 10 and Hebrews 1 put the brakes on that. Okay. Here's a small one. What are your thoughts on Romans 13? At what point is it acceptable for a Christian to stand in defiance against a corrupt government? And more to the point, if a government has broken its contract with the people, do the people obey that government or that contract, i.e., Second Amendment? I.e., the Second Amendment? Yeah. Um, okay, let me preface this by saying I am no, I think you can probably tell, I'm no tie-dyed wearing flip-flop, you know, Hey man, let's you know. Wow, far out. I'm not a hippie. Okay, I'm not. I'm not. A, I say that I'm not about to. So what I'm about to say, I don't say as some you know kind of pacifist and all that kind of thing. Um, and I say this as one who owns multiple guns, a lot of them. <laughs> um, I am not going to. I am not going to, um, that is not a hill for me to die on. 
the Second Amendment. Um, it's not. And I say that as someone who really enjoys to go out and shoot. I do. Um, but I don't, have a, I don't have a biblical mandate to own a gun. I don't have a biblical right to own a gun. I have a constitutional right to own a gun. But if, if the government were to completely, and, and hey, you know, we may be there before too long. If, um, you know, if, if the government says we're going to outlaw guns and, you know, I'm going to come and we're going to come and take your guns, if, if the police or whatever, National Guard or whoever shows up at my door and says, give me all your guns, um, I'm not going to enjoy it. But, I mean, I would, I guess I would have to do it. Uh, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna fight that. Now, what I will fight is the right to preach the gospel, and I will die on that hill. I will absolutely die on that hill. So, if the government ever asks me to do something that is against Scripture, uh, I'll defy the government. If the government tells me you cannot gather as a church and worship God, I will defy that because I have a command from Christ to gather with my brothers and sisters to worship him. That I will fight. And that I would gladly say, do what you got to do. Um, so, anyway, I'd... Okay. Another one is, um, what do you think about what Paul said in the book of Acts when he said, uh, but the Holy Spirit didn't allow us to go? Yeah, that's um, however that was manifested, you know, however that we don't know exactly what that looked like. Um, but the, the Holy Spirit providentially prevented Paul from doing what he had planned on doing. Paul wanted to go to Spain, and he never made it to Spain. So uh, there are times when God just providentially, whatever that looked like, we don't exactly know, but he just providentially changed, uh, prevented them from doing what they had planned on doing. So I have no problem with that. Uh, there's been times when I've planned on doing something, and, you know, things just prevented me from going, and I have to chalk that up to God's providence. You know, I was supposed to go preach in Madagascar, this past October, and because of COVID, I wasn't allowed to go. And so, you know, I wanted to go and planned on going, but wasn't allowed to. So it's, it's whatever that looked like, just a, a providential hindrance from, from God. All right. Do you believe there's any, any place for the use of, I'm assuming, the uh, prophetic gifts in witnessing new nations or to bring about a new Christian nation? Yeah, okay. Um, the short answer to that is no, and I think probably what the what kind of what's behind this question. Uh, you hear stories like, "Well, I heard about this missionary that went into this deep, dark jungle in Africa or South America and reached this unreached people group, and they were living in huts and still in the Stone Age, and somehow uh, this missionary was able to communicate the gospel in that native tongue, and he was able to do that even though he didn't know the language." You hear a lot of these stories, but they're kind of like the theological equivalent of Bigfoot. You know, there's lots of grainy pictures, but uh, there's no actual proof that these things exist. 
And so these stories are, are notoriously difficult to track down and, and document. In fact, I've seen no credible documentation. Now, charismatics are full of these kind of stories, but I've seen no credible documentation that anything like that has ever happened. Even if it did, I would say this, even if it did, even if some missionary somewhere did, was all, all of a sudden able to speak a language that he had never been taught before, some unreached people group in Papua New Guinea or whatever, even if that did happen, that's a huge if, but if it did, it's, that still would not be the gift of tongues. Because the gift of tongues, the gift of languages, was speaking, uh, not only speaking in a known human language that was not known to the one speaking it, but there also had to be someone to interpret that language who also did not speak that language but was able to instantly interpret it. And there was, there's a reason for the gift of tongues. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14, 20 through 22, tongues were for a sign, not to those who believe but to unbelievers. And it's a quote from Isaiah chapter 28. Basically, tongues, the genuine gift of languages, was as, the purpose of it was as a sign of God's judgment against unbelieving Israel. That was the purpose for the gift of tongues. And so that's not the purpose of our hypothetical missionary friend who goes into some deep, dark jungle somewhere. I would say if that were to happen, it would be a miracle, and I have no problem with miracles at all. It would be a miracle, but that still would not be the biblical gift of tongues or languages. tonight how do you continually keep up the good fight what they mean by that is through the years I've lost friends by saying and telling them the truth and trying to deal with the errors that have crept into the church I've had to take breaks because of this what are your thoughts on that keeping up the good fight in the midst of that yeah um it's not up to us how the truth is received. It is up to us to communicate it. So there will be times of discouragement, and uh, I would say just keep doing it, keep being faithful. Know that we are to expect tribulation. Uh, we are to expect persecution. All those who live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Uh, we are to expect that it will cost us relationships, even sometimes within our own families. And uh, Jesus said, I did not come to bring peace but a sword, and your enemies will be members of your own household. So now don't get a martyr complex and go around trying to make enemies. You, you don't have to try that as, as a Christian. If you if you live godly in Christ Jesus, it's just going to happen. Uh, so don't be... Don't be discouraged by that. Expect it. It's going to happen. Continue to stand your ground on the truth. Speak the truth in love, Ephesians 4.15, and trust God for the results. So at least you'll have the blessing of having a clear conscience that you know that you've spoken the truth and you leave the results up to God. Any thoughts or concerns about Franklin Graham? Thoughts and concerns about Franklin Graham. Um, yes. Um, I will say not as many concerns as with his father, Billy Graham. Now, I have to be careful in saying that because you say that in a lot of Baptist churches. They'll run you out on the rail. 
Uh, Billy Graham had some very, very troubling statements, and not just once or twice, but multiple times, multiple times, uh, saying things that are basically universalistic, universalism. He famously or infamously told Robert Schuller in an interview back in the early 2000s, he said that I believe that there are that God has people in the Muslim and the Hindu world, and he said there are people from all of these different faiths who are in Christ, even if they don't know they're in Christ. That's universalism. That was that was a, that was a very troubling. And he, people have tried to play it off. Oh well, he was just getting old. No, he was very lucid in his thinking. I mean, he remained clear thinking all the way up to his, his death just a couple of years ago. So um, uh, very, very troubled with what Billy Graham said. Franklin, to his credit, does seem to be uh, more solid in, in his doctrine. Uh, to his credit, I have seen Franklin Graham interviewed many, many times, as probably most, if not all, of you have. And uh, anytime he's interviewed, he gets the gospel in somewhere, somehow. You know, it's brief, but it's in there. And, you know, hats off to him. Credit, kudos for doing that. My concern with Franklin Graham is that he also happily, I assume happily, associates with known false teachers. Uh, he was big friends with the Crouches, Paul and Jan Crouch before they died. He was with them regularly, being interviewed with them, and, and he partners with some known, a lot of the people in my seminar, Clouds Without Water, uh, he partners with them, and that's in direct violation of script, Scripture. Now, I'm sure his motives, I'm sure he's just wanting to get the truth out, but the thing is, is we cannot sin in the means even if it is towards a good end. Does that make sense? Even if we're wanting a good end, we're not at liberty to sin in the means to that end. And uh, that's the difficulty that I have with, with Franklin. One more personality, and no more personalities tonight, but just one more. Oh, okay. Now, what's your thoughts on Stephen Furtick? Just saying. Unqualified. Uh, St Stephen Furtick, I, I can't, I can't stand him. I mean, I can't. I, he is, he is one of the most arrogant individuals I have ever seen. Uh, arrogance just oozes out of his pores. He mangles the Word of God. Uh, he openly says he has a church for the unchurched, which is a contradiction in terms. There's no such thing as a church for the unchurched. Uh, he's arrogant. He takes scripture out of context. He's very charismatic. He's very immature. And he openly endorses and partners with known false teachers. In fact, his model in ministry, he'll, he'll tell you. If you ask him, well, who's your favorite preacher? Who's your model preacher? He'll tell you T.D. Jakes. T.D. Jakes is a modalist. T.D. Jakes doesn't even believe in the Trinity. He's a modalist. He's a heretic. He's outside of biblical Christianity, and that's his model in preaching. Rod Parsley is good friends with him. Rod Parsley endorses Furtick, and Furtick endorses Rod Parsley. Rod Parsley is a charlatan, complete and total charlatan. So, 
No go on Furtick. History, uh, do you think uh, Augustine's prior religious associations to, prior to his conversion uh, to Christianity influenced his development of original sin and total depravity? Do I think Augustine's prior, say that again? His prior associations, religious associations, uh, prior to his conversion influenced his understanding of original sin and total depravity. I guess I'm not full. I'm going to have to punt on that one because I'm not fully okay. versed on his prior associations before his conversion. Simple enough. All right. In, in, uh, here's another one. In growing in our knowledge of Christ, how do we fight pride that may grow up in us and still be loving and kind with other brothers and sisters who are earlier in their journey in growing in their knowledge in God's truth and his word? How do we fight pride in that? I think the first step is to recognize that none of us is without pride. Every single one of us has pride. I don't care how humble you are. Uh, every single one of us has pride. Everything, none of us does anything with 100% pure motives. I said that, I think, Sunday morning in my sermon. None of us does anything with 100% pure motives. Your, your grandmother could be hanging off of a cliff holding onto a branch and even you going to grab her and pull her to safety, even that act, you would not be doing even that with 100% pure motives. Uh, and so we need to recognize that in ourselves, that none of us is without pride. And so we've got to do our best to, Romans 8.13, put to death the deeds of the body, go to war against our flesh, uh, go to war against your flesh and do battle with it. It's a, it's a daily discipline. Uh, pray for the enabling of the Holy Spirit to help you in that. Stay in the word. Um, there is an arrogance that comes with some folks in our circles, I think, with this um, you know, sound doctrine and theology that we like to, to hold on to so dearly and so rightly. But... Um, but I have come across there's you know there's some arrogant Calvinists out there, and Calvinism, the doctrine of election rightly understood, should be the most humbling doctrine out there. It should kill our pride, not feed it. So um, yeah, be careful about that. Go to war with your pride, and recognize it's a war that you'll never you'll never fully win completely win this side of heaven. Grandma going across the street and yanking her back. I know why I'd want her back so she could keep making some good biscuits. <laughs> there you go. Right? There you go. That's exactly right. My great-grandmother made the best fried chicken I've ever tasted in my life. Amen. That's good stuff. <laughs> All right. I had two more. We're done. What does your family worship look like in your home? Yeah, well, our, uh, our kids are are out of the home so so we don't have any any short people walking around our house <laughs> all the kids are gone but uh with kathy and me what it looks like uh every night kathy and i read the bible together uh that's what we do before we go to bed we'll read some out of psalms and proverbs and then the new testament usually is kind of our routine we do that every night we try to get through through the entire thing two to three times a year in doing that um so each of us has our own personal study and uh, prayer, but, but we pray together. We read scripture together. We, 
reading the Bible together with Kathy at night, that's my f- favorite part of the day. It's what I, that's the highlight of my day, and we do that right before we go to bed. Uh, and, and then it's, it's just on a you know, daily basis, we, we talk about the things of the Lord a lot. And uh, it's just a part of our natural you know, conversation. It's just what, what we do. And so I'm very blessed to have a, a very sound wife who loves to talk about the things of God. And so we do that. But, so it's kind of what it looks like, I guess. All right. And my wife is very good at one-on-one discipleship, very good at that. Do you affirm sublapsarianism, infralapsarianism, or superlapsarianism? <laughs> or do you have a Labrador retriever? A <laughs> Labrador retriever. I grew up with Labrador retrievers. Uh, we had black labs growing up. And uh, I, I don't have a lab now, but uh, about five years ago, Kathy got me a dog. She didn't want a dog at all. I did want a dog. I've always, I just love dogs. I'm a dog kind of person. I just I love dogs. I don't care much for cats, but I really like dogs. And uh, so five years ago, Kathy got me a dog. She didn't want one at all. I wanted a big dog, and so she got me a little frou-frou dog. <laughs> that, was, that was the compromise, you know, her not wanting one at all, me wanting a big one. So we, she got me a small dog, a little 10-pound dog. Um, half Maltese, half Silky Terrier, and hey, any man can have a lab or a German Shepherd. It takes a real man to be secure in his manhood to have a dog 